Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. I'm Chris. I'm Kevin. I'm Jason. And I'm Jenny. And today, we are talking about identity politics. And um, the misappropriation of identity politics, and... The cultural appropriation, one might say. There we go. (laughs) Cultural misappropriation of identity politics. And uh, the reason why we shouldn't just let liberals take that away from us not me personally <laughs> I do, I do not, really into I like do not white identity politics <laughs> <laughs> no I hate I hate Taco Bell <laughs> that's what white identity politics is right it's like being super fucking amped on Taco Bell yeah yeah pretty much like having an order like listen We've all been like poor and vegan enough at some point in our lives that <laughs> we ordered a bean taco from there, but I've never it's been really excited about it. I've always been very sad. That's how I know things are shitty. <laughs> so <right>. that's it. <laughs> that's a wrap. <laughs> good, good discussion, folks. All right, thanks. Good night. <laughs> I don't want to see anyone post more is the thing. (laughs) Like, I don't want to see any more hot or cold takes on anything. Well, I mean, I think that's really the crux of uh, the whatever, like, controversy or conundrum we're in in terms of, like, identity politics is that people lose sight of all critical thinking skills and just revert to whatever is the most recent hot take. And if the most recent hot take is that identity politics are good, then that's what people go with. If the most recent hot take is that they're bad and encourage people to organize along race lines instead of class lines, then people go with that. Um, And people don't actually take a second to think about what it actually what anyone's actually saying because they get hung up on words. So I think that's really what I want to talk about. Damn. Yeah, that's really well put because that cuts it. You know, it's a critique that cuts it both directions of the the, the anti-identity politics that are uh, just uh, overly simplistic, and then the it cuts against that. But then it also cuts against the the the, the pro-identity politics that are overly simplistic. Yeah, and, and I think that you know it would be very easy to say that the folks who coined the term identity politics were the Combahee River Collective, which were group of black Marxist feminists, mostly queer black women, um, who very much identified Marxism as something they agreed with and a framework which they felt also needed fine-tuning and didn't adequately speak to uh, their oppression. So, you know, that's really easy to say. So I don't know that, that even just pointing to that and saying, well, this is why we have to preserve this tradition of identity politics is necessarily um, a good enough argument, but it's something I'm invested in, you know, discussing and thinking critically about. Because whether or not we think the term identity politics is useful or not um, is one conversation. Whether or not we think uh, the tradition, you know, that the Combahee River Collective stands in 
is something worth preserving is completely different than just talking about words. So maybe a good place to start is to just define our terms a little bit, because I think, you know, when, when we talk about like how there's good and bad approaches to um, a term like Marxism, right? Um, but we are that we are critical enough to investigate like that a person who calls himself Marxist might mean something different than I do, right? But I think that's a definition that's more easily grappled with. Maybe encounter it for the first time and just decide to go and look into it. Like, you know, there's enough written in Wikipedia length form about how, you know, Kim Il sung called himself a Marxist and Leon Trotsky called himself a Marxist and whatever. And so do people who think that you basically people who have quasi anarchist politics, right? That's easy enough to find. Identity politics is a easy enough found buzzword, but I don't think it's nearly as easy to grapple with on your own. So defining our terms would be pretty helpful. Right. And the tradition that we all were raised in, we were taught that um, identity politics were bad. Yeah, just that. And that there's, there should be no politics of identity because that is atomizing and it takes the onus off of the collective and puts it on the individual, which a certain type of identity politics, sure. that's absolutely correct. Uh, liberal identity politics very much wants us to uh, to individualize all politics because liberalism is a politics of individualism and is 100% incompatible with collectivism and an emancipatory project. So, yeah, the, a, any identity politics that is divorced from the class struggle is an identity politics that is reactionary. Yeah. yeah. So you talk about how, you know, the, the kind of organizing history that we all have um, and political education we all received uh, definitely said identity politics bad when clean you know, swipe across bad, right? At the same time, we spent a lot of time studying folks like the Mattachine Society, uh, the Black Panther Party, and saying, look at, look, we stand in the tradition of these organizations, look at the history of the American Socialist Movement, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Which is true, you know, um, but you, I also feel like it is disingenuous to say those examples that we love pointing to historically are not some form of identity politics. They're better identity politics, right, than like postmodernist iterations of ID politics and privilege theory, you know, but they are. And I know that's inconvenient to, you know, the line of thinking a lot of us had previously kind of stuck to, but it's true. So, I mean, the nationalist politics of the 1960s and 70s were in response to, or not in response, but like, uh, inspired by the national liberation movements in, you know, Vietnam and China and elsewhere, very much informed by Maoism and sort of artificially imposed on ethnic identities that were very much still American and not a separate nationality. And the way that those uh, manifested themselves were in attempts to form more of an identity. But um, there was like an overcorrection against white racism in an attempt to form a black national identity 
And I know I'm like a white guy fucking critiquing black nationalism. But I think that, you know, in Assad Hader's book where he talks about black nationalism and nationalisms in the United States as being sort of like incompatible with this, the, the reality of the situation. So like when we, when we say that stand in the tradition of, you know, of like the, the Black Panthers, you know, in the tradition of like radical socialist self-organization. Yeah, I mean, the same way we say we stand in the tradition of like the Communist Party, but certainly I'm not out here trying to be an apologist for every position the Communist Party has had just because like they had a good go at it in the 30s for a while, even while they were having bad positions, you know? That's actually... Oh yeah, that's a really good point because the most heroic period of the Communist Party is also when they um, probably have like the most disgusting politics and in a formal sense on a lot of pretty important questions. Um, like for example, that uh, other socialists are social fascists, right? And they represent the backdoor to fascism, so that a person who is for socialism and for a workers' party and for revolution, but is not organized into or in sympathy with the communist party is a fascist so they can hold that position in a, in you know on paper right and at the same time be like the fr- at the front lines of like at literally every single battle also you know whatever it's it's in in thinking in thinking about getting ready to talk about this it occurred to me that you know when huey newton's talking about the difference between a revolutionary nationalism and a reactionary nationalism it sounds a lot like the conversation that we're trying to have about, you know, the way in which identity can be something that leads people into or that, you know, that that it that it meshes with and overlaps with class struggle. And then there's another way in which it diverts from class struggle. It seems to be the same conversation. And I want to know if people think that that's kind of accurate or not. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. But one of the things that struck me when I was reading the uh, Kumbahi uh, River Collective Statement is how much the formation of this group had to have been therapeutic, you know, and in a situation where these women were not only oppressed as women in their own movement, which was incredibly masculinist, the uh, the black power movement focused a lot around the idea of reclaiming masculinity stolen by white men and overemphasized masculinity, which was incredibly alienating to women and also uh, was incredibly homophobic and a lot of these women were queer you know so just having a a group where a bunch of queer black women could get together and just be themselves and discuss politics openly and discuss their thoughts and feelings openly had to have been an incredible form of just like you know self-care just very very necessary for their their mental health and for their ability to function as marxists in the society that is trying to rip them apart yeah that 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 really reminds me of of the discussions that we've been having around like gothic marxism actually where we're uh, making appeals to the notion that we have to tap into everything that is human to be able to uh, f- fully flesh out a, a marxist worldview uh, and if you're going to sort of flatten out uh, what it means to be human in order to, like, you know, try to fit it, everything into this, like, perfect theoretical objective category, you're you're removing the reason why people want to engage in politics in the first place. 
And I think maybe identity politics is a form of this, at least when it's best articulated, which is it's that it's, um, you know, people saying, like, this is who I am. This is a this is not not just, uh, you know, a, a label that's slapped on me, but this is like this is what I am as a subjective individual is how I feel and how I think and how I dream and how I wish and desire. This is everything that makes me human. And you want to erase that out of me? No, I actually want to embrace that and build that up. And I want to refuse the society that tells me that it's not good enough or not, uh, uh, or shouldn't be there. Um, And, you know, it's important to organize around that. And so many parts of our identity are also what lead us to, you know, Marxism to begin with. So I'm not going to pretend like my experience, particularly like as a brown woman, is not something that lended itself to like relating to Marxism, you know. So when those parts of our identity are actually bringing us closer you know, I think it's something we have to grapple with. So, and the thing too about Combahee, right, is that it those weren't, they didn't just reach these conclusions because of their experience within the Black Power movement, right? These were people who were also involved in like queer liberation work, were involved in reproductive justice efforts, and, um, you know, were doing like anti-war organizing. Like they were doing doing the goddamn thing at the time. And they felt the weight of, you know, oppression in all of these spaces, which is why like postmodern practices, like creating safe spaces and all of this other stuff, you know, we've got to grapple with in question too, because in our organizing efforts, as much as we try to make them less oppressive, we're trying to organize the working class. It's going to be full of contradictions and people with all sorts of different levels of consciousness and it's messy. And if we're going to commit ourselves to this sort of work and this sort of messiness, you know, we have to be able to have some true form of self-care that is not manicures and face masks, you know, <laughs> while we're talking about postmodernization, postmodernism's um, bastardization of terms. One could look at the Kumbahi River Collective and be like, oh yeah, so uh, identity politics is self-care. Okay, that's fine. Sure, people can have their own meetups and get together and talk about what it's like to be an oppressed person, but how is that a basis for a system of politics? It's not. (laughs) That's the big secret. It's not. Um... Well, so like among the many um, among the things that we read to prepare to have this conversation was you know Hayter's book Mistaken Identity, and I I'm glad we read it because it, well well I don't think he I really don't feel like he spends enough time on it and so that's mostly just that's my own personal desire in a, any book about race is that he doesn't spend enough time talking about the Communist Party, but there are three <laughs> <Right>. three pages. <laughs> um, there are three pages where he does talk about the Communist Party, and I think that they really flesh out and could flesh out a lot more if there were more of them. But they, they really flesh out, you know, the terms of this debate going all the way back to, like I was saying, what I consider one of the more heroic periods of American socialism. And, you know, Harry Haywood, um, who is a, should be more famous than he is, black leading communist who identified the shift in the CP's degeneration as falling um, you know, 
on what we now might call an identity politics side, you know, or a bad identity politics uh, approach to race. He talks about like moving from forced integration dances so that the comrades with white, white chauvinist tendencies would have to attend a dance with, you know, black comrades and just like kind of get over it. Right? Like that's a, a Haywood would have called that um, that that's an appropriate like that's good praxis and you know to educating white members about the need to criticize white chauvinism in their own ranks and to like seek out and root out and self-correct white chauvinism in their own ranks and you know educating black comrades to push against you know what Huey Newton would have called reactionary nationalism that's all the good praxis and then he says it starts to fall apart on you know when they shift toward like seeking out like bad ideas in people's heads despite what they profess or you know white comrades shouldn't speak about white chauvinism only black ones should and and so on and so like i think it's really interesting that he identifies in the the communist party its degeneration as being a similar set of politics that we're dealing with today is like the stuff that that really dominates what we call like postmodern liberal identity politics is is what degenerates the communist party yeah. this is a hard thing for me to talk about and get right i think i mean i think you're getting to the heart of it though well one, i mean one of the things that i think drives the difficulty in it is that um your people your position comes out of your your personal experiences as an individual your unique individual personal experiences with uh with the issue i know i can speak to my own uh experience with that you know in in the tradition that we come from in its criticisms of identity politics, you know, I can, in retrospect, I can identify that uh, the, the ease with, with which I accepted critiques of identity politics were was absolutely, unquestionably informed by my desire to find something that uh, made me feel better about being criticized on the grounds of my identity, right? So, like... I wanted to find an escape from the critiques brought against me as an individual by identity politics. And that's a bad motivation, but that, you know, that's, it is, it's a reality. Um, I think that, but, and, 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 but I, but I think that, you know, it's a, 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 the same sort of, you know, experience is what the vast majority of people have whenever they approach the issue of, of how to deal with uh, whatever issue, uh, whatever side of the issue you're you're coming to it from. So, like, you know, what drives you to be angry about the state of the world may be an interpersonal interaction that you had, like you know, getting harassed by cops, uh, even though you're not doing anything at all, while you know uh, you see some uh, white kids get totally left alone and smoking weed on the corner and nobody gives a shit. It's those interpersonal interactions that drives any of us into politics because we're individually angry about the world. I think, and so I think that, that you know, I think the, the newness of a, a radical left is a part of the prevalence of the fact that uh, politics uh, analysis of politics seems to, st- uh, seems to have like sort of, stunted stayed at that at the level of the of the interpersonal but i I think there's a further like a need for uh, a more mature um left movement to be able to articulate 
uh, a development of identity politics into structural analysis and not leave all of it at the level of the interpersonal. Right. And I think that that is where a majority of people who engage in identity politics would have us end things is right before you get to the structural analysis. And um, that's because that's been the the discourse in academia, which has set the tone for everything else. Because in our, you know, women's studies programs and whatever else, uh, there is a, an invested interest in not criticizing capitalism and not tying in uh, racism to the structure that perpetuates it. Um, and, you know, once again, identity, identity politics divorced from a structural analysis and criticism of capital is not challenging the status quo and doing nothing but atomizing the movement the way that people who criticize identity politics uh, say that it does. This is Okay, so this is what I always wonder. It's like when people, uh, when a lot of people criticize identity politics, they are coming from a good place when they do it. And uh, Jordan Peterson is not one of them, <laughs> and neither is anyone on the right, right? Um, but like people on the left who criticize identity, identity politics are painted with the same brush that Jordan Peterson would be. There's no room to point out that racism is structural and racism is very much built into all of the institutions of the United States and, you know, world capitalism in general, but specifically the United States. We are an incredibly racist society. So if you would like to do something about changing the structure to get rid of the racism and you would like to criticize the atomization of liberal identity politics, you're painted with the same brush that Jordan Peterson is painted with. As a white person, I don't feel like touching that shit with a 10-foot pole, you know? Well, it's tricky because, like, for me, I fundamentally agree with the criticisms of current iterations of identity politics, of privilege theory, of intersectionality, which has also, you know, been commandeered by the fucking liberal assholes right so that's like, that thing that hillary clinton I, is right <laughs> yes she hillary clinton invented intersectionality i not saw her tweet Crenshaw, about it right <laughs> right so like i fundamentally agree with the arguments put forward and i have still been alienated so many times because of the way we're having these conversations and because so much of it is just flexing like it's not actually having a conversation it's people latching on to words and saying let's have a conversation about you know words and not their meaning and so i have watched comrade after comrade attack people for using the word privilege when the privilege doesn't exist we all suffer blah 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 whatever which is which again are arguments i fundamentally agree with but i also think you have to listen to people and understand where they're coming from and why they're using the words they use because it's the vocabulary they have, right? You know, and one time at a Marxism conference, I gave a talk on on intersectionality and why privilege theory is, is trash. And someone asked a question and used the word allies in it. So I answered their question, and I don't even remember the question. I answered their question, and I used the language they used. So I used the word allies to answer it, to which someone, a white woman, 
Uh, I could tell you who later. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Made it her her duty to get on stack during the discussion and say, actually, the word ally is bad. We should use the word comrades instead. And it was like, did you hear the question or are you just Mm-mm. here to language police? Because I thought that right. was a practice we recognized was annoying and stupid. Which is, again, not to say that like language doesn't mean anything. I definitely think that there are conversations to be had. But it is to say, like, what in the holy white fuck? Language, it's not that language doesn't mean anything. It's just that it doesn't mean everything. <laughs> I know. Right. So language is extremely malleable. Word ally is like literally the least of our problems. Right. And then, and and if somebody's saying using it in good faith, then fucking meet them where they're at and like God, work it out later. It's not, who gives a shit. It's just a non-issue. You definitely don't need to get on stack to talk for 3 I would take issue with it. the swapping those two words out anyways. They don't mean the same thing. We want to get really you know hung up on the definition of words. Um not everybody I'm allied with is a comrade. Have you guys ever uh, talked to British leftists? <laughs> I would never. Mm-hmm. Well, the worst uh, identity. Have a. Everybody else in the world is confused <laughs> why Americans are so hung up on words and language. Right. Like, I remember going over to I went over to the UK in like 20, 2008 or something, and I met up with a leftist friend of mine, and uh, he was just like. Oh yeah, these cunts and those twats. And I was like, "Whoa, <laughs> shit, dude! <laughs> you can't say You're that." Get canceled before that's a thing. It's like you can't say that. And I'm like, Whoa. what? <laughs> really? You can say that? <laughs> so I'm moving to London. <laughs> no, it's not. I'm going to say cunt every day. Well, like the, the real answer is that um, you know the reason why we're so hung up on these things is you know you alluded to before, which is. I think, you know, the retreat into the academy, which part of it is a vested interest in, you know, liberalism being dominant. But the other is, you know, the defeat of the labor left, like the separation of the workers movement from socialism. So, like, there are also people who acquiesced and surrendered. And and it's not just in the United States, although it's got its most fertile ground to in the United States. But, you know, like the people like Hardenegri, Chantal and Mouffe, and a whole layer of people in the wake of the, you know, the kind of collapse of the Soviet Union, or even into the into the eighties and sort of the late Cold War, they they're kind of casting about for revolutionary subjects, and that takes you in in a bunch of different directions. Once you like, you know, once we loosed ourselves from you know being tethered to the proletariat as the subject, then you start to get this insane notion that women are the revolutionary subject, as as if women weren't you know workers or capitalists right and so on right you get this you get this mm-hmm. d you decouple people from you know their actual experience from their actual like uh, role in society and the only way that you can make sense of that is to make the identity as prime rather than the social relation but the the equally wrong-headed response is to say is to to go in a different kind of identity direction which i guess we now call workerism or what you know in the past, people like Lenin would have called like syndicalism, right? Which is a political tradition, which says that nothing exists but the working class and the capitalist class, and no other considerations matter. And you have to, you know, that's kind of true, but it's just it 
it papers over all these really important distinctions like a racially divided society where you can scab on each other on the basis of identity, for example. Do you remember that one chant that people used to use all the time, which was like, power to the whatever, whatever is power. <laughs> and they would say like, women. Power to the baby, The children. That was my favorite one. Power <laughs> yeah. to the children. I'm like, terrible idea. I like that you introduced that as the <laughs> not need to be giving power to power. whatever. I, my, my thought was always like, ice cream for everyone. No more bedtimes. <laughs> Which, I mean. That was a really good child impersonation well, there, Chris. Uh, I like I that. Still one. I'm a man, so we, uh, we are children forever. We never grow up. Our society yeah, infantilizes us and keeps us helpless, stupid, and uh, lauds sure. us for it. That's my identity. Yes. <laughs> Idiot child. <laughs> I want to investigate a little bit more, or I want to talk a little bit more about the kind of, like, you know, class reductionist, vulgar Marxism that is a reaction to identity politics, which tries to flatten all identity and subsume them all into, you know, taking the concept of proletariat. And, and making it an identity rather than, you know, like resituating it uh, as the new identity politics in a way. Because I think it comes from a place that is reasonable in terms of its like reaction to what we're calling bad identity politics or, you know, what I like to think of as reactionary nationalism. I'm really thankful that that, that um, I came across that, you know. I think it comes from a place that it makes a lot of sense, you know, to be, like, let's say, speaking as like a white person who's a working class person to be like whoa uh i don't really feel like i have a whole lot in common with barack obama and condoleezza rice <laughs> so maybe like you know skin color is not all that important man it's just we both are at on at the job and like that it makes sense as a as a visceral reaction but um you know if we're trying to be scientific about our politics a visceral reaction is only a starting point but there are people who try to like turn that into mm -hmm. uh like, that's the response, is to, like, pretend that these very real different lives that people are forced to lead, that, that they just don't matter. Well, I think, yeah, well, and I think there's a refusal to engage with this sort of stuff that is anti-scientific, right? And mm -hmm. not dialectical at all. And has, like, ceded all identity politics to, you know, the libs and the ultra-leftists. Uh, and the fascists. Which is a problem, so... Yeah, for sure. Uh, if we can recognize that, like, postmodernism is absolutely the politics of defeat and one that said we cannot organize collectively, so we have to focus on, like, individual solutions uh, that make us feel better, etc., etc. You know, like, I just feel like that's not rocket science to recognize. A and then to also recognize that, that what Combahee was getting at and what... Certainly Kimberly Crenshaw was getting at in terms of talking about intersectionality and what other folks have, particularly black feminists, have, have gotten to the core of in terms of interlocking oppressions. And there's been a lot of vocabulary to describe it, right, is a recognition, you know, that like Marxism speaks well to exploitation and does speak to oppression, but wasn't getting the job done entirely. Right. And I don't think that's a, a, a bad thing if we are people who honestly are recognizing that it is a living, breathing, theoretical framework. And those are things we really like saying. Um, it just seems like very common sense to continue fleshing 
that out within the framework of Marxism, saying like maybe it speaks well to exploitation and is not getting the job done when we talk about oppression. Uh, What are things that we can use to supplement our Marxism and keep developing this theoretical framework, right? It just, it's not easy for sure, but but it, it really just feels like it's been over theorized in a lot of ways to the yes, point that yes, it, yes. it's just gotten us to this really confusing place that we didn't need to go. <laughs> Don't do the wiggle fingers at that me. Is... That's postmodernist. Well, <laughs> wiggle fingers is fucking not postmodern. Not the only postmodernist. Wiggle fingers, wiggle is, fingers reactionary. is reactionary. Uh, Jenny, you're talking about like Marxism speaking to oppression, but not like fully answering the question. And I think that like that's true. in as much as we recognize this, you know, this kind of terrible rupture in in the world communist movement, where you know you move from the Bolsheviks embodying, uh, you know, really being at the forefront and like light years ahead on a lot of social questions, and then you know a society which makes it illegal to be gay but calling itself socialist. But like I was rereading passages from what's what is to be done, which is everyone's favorite thing in uh on the left. But there's this really great there's this really great uh passage which should serve, I think, as a starting point for people who are trying to like resituate questions of identity in in the Marxist tradition. Um and he writes uh so he's talking about class consciousness and he says the working class consciousness can't be genuine political consciousness unless workers are trained to respond to all cases of tyranny, oppression, violence, and abuse, no matter what class is affected. Unless they're trained, moreover, to respond from a social democratic point of view, is what he's, he's, he's saying, you know, he's identifying opposition to racism, to sexism, even if it's directed at, you know, members of the bourgeoisie, as revolutionary, and anything less than that, and it's not. Right. He says that it can't be genuine class consciousness unless the workers learn from concrete and above all topical political facts and events to observe every other social class and all the manifestation of its intellectual, ethical, and political life. Unless they learn to apply in practice the materialist analysis, the materialist estimate of all aspects of life and the activity of all classes, strata, groups of the population. Which is to say, if the only thing you're thinking about is there are workers and bosses, then you're not thinking in, in, in a holistic, totalizing sense, which means you're not thinking about society, which means you're not thinking about social relations and the abolition of the present order of things and you don't have a communist approach to your own work um embedded in that from the very beginning is reacting to all instances of oppression no matter which social class is affected so if if we had been able to continue from that point i think maybe marxism would have been better at you know dealing with where we are right now i think this is what Assad hater articulates in a really useful turn of phrase or, or use of language as the divide between the universal and the particular, right? That that there is this uh, presentation of the issue as though class analysis gives us, or class analysis and class demands give us uh, a universal perspective and a universal uh, political thrust. Um, identity uh, analysis and identity demands give us a particularized uh, perspective and a particularized uh, political thrust and and that hence the problem with identity politics is it's 
uh, particularized and not universal. Uh, it doesn't provide the basis for a, po- a, a, a workable political coalition that can actually achieve it, what it's uh, trying to accomplish or whatever. That's the the sort of like the the modern day Adolf Reed critique of of identity politics. But Assad Hader, I think, makes the point that. This misunderstands what it means to call something universal or particular. That uh, instead, what if if you were to to look at a demand that arises from any given identity oppressed identity group, you would recognize the, that demand as a universal class demand. As a working class, we demand that we not be harassed and violently, brutally assaulted by the police officers. Then you place that demand in a particular society, and yes, it's going to look in this particular society, and it's uh, the, the people who are disproportionately affected by that problem are a particular group of people, but that is a universal demand. And if we can't get on board with that universal demand, then we can't create a universal coalition of uh, working class people to work toward abolition of class society. To negate or to abdicate that responsibility to take up per, uh, the universal demand demands that disproportionately affect particular sections of the class is to abdicate our responsibility or our, our duty or what is incumbent on us to be able to be effective as a um, a working class movement or trying to create a working class movement. Well, and that really is all there is to it. Not all there is to it, right? But that really is it, is that like, the, the other thing that people really like saying is is that famous Debs quote, um, which escapes me at the moment. Years ago, I recognized my kinship with all living things. And I made up my mind that I was not one bit better than the meanest on earth. I said then and I say now that while there is a lower class, I am in it. While there is a criminal element, I am of it. And while there is a soul in prison, I am not free. And I think what what the Combahee River Collective is, is really trying to grapple with and a lot of other, you know, things that we call identity politics, whether they are or not, is like, well, how do we actually think about these things practically and like how to be honest about as long as there are oppressed people, none of us are free, right? And the recognition of the Combahee River Collective was that as the most oppressed group in this country, our liberation is tied to inherently, you know, black women's liberation. So, and so we're all free. None of us are free. How do we actually get to that point and not just make that a slogan that feels good to say even if we honestly believe it what it, what does it take to actually get there so that's funny whenever um when you first mentioned it i thought you were talking about a different deb's quote that in a, in this exact same conversation could be regarded as infamous or problematic or whatever where he says that the socialist party has no special program for the negro worker 
you know, has no program for the for any section of the working class that you know other than the working class as a whole or something to that effect. And that to me shows like some you know blinders on how to really approach the the ethic that as long as there's a lower class, I'm of it. As long as there's a criminal element, I'm of it. And all that because I think like Debs recognizes or recognized that there was such a thing as lynching and there was such a thing as segregation and that those were bad things. But I think that he also kind of, as a person, embodies, um, and it's an undeveloped politics, you know, today, and I guess it's, you know, relative to the time, it's still not that brilliant. But it's that kind of after the revolution, this, that's, how, that's how these things begin to get resolved. Like, I think it's... Susan B. Anthony. Or someone like that says to Debs, give women the vote and we'll give you socialism. And his response is, you know, give us socialism and we'll give you the vote. Because his and his, his whole thinking about these kind of social questions is is really typical of the workerist mentality today, that like the primary contradiction in the world is between capital and labor, and that's true, right? But the resolution of all the other contradictions flows from the resolution first of that. You know that like that's that's the key that unlocks the 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 era in which you get to move beyond all the other questions and is wrong. Cure the disease which is capitalism, but it's not like you don't stop the fucking symptoms of the disease it causes the degeneration of the body. You know what I mean? I mean, I guess I, so I kind of agree, but I think the way that I would put it is a little different. It's just a, you know, instead of thinking of like, you're going to solve that and then this will happen is that you, they kind of ultimately, you know, questions of oppression are solved by the, the abolition of the disappearance of class antagonisms. That's true. Uh, at least that's what yeah that's what we hope that's all right I'm saying. that's what we that's what we that's what we yeah. fer- fervently hope um you know in those moments where we allow ourselves to hope at all but the w- the reason why something like revolutionary nationalism uh, might might still have something you know for us or why there can be a good identity politics is because it's it's in the effort to solve those problems that the question of class gets raised in the first place so it's the relationship between the two um, it's not that I, I don't think it's necessarily that it's like two keys you turn at the same time, but there isn't a good metaphor for this. The point is, <laughs> there's got to be a good metaphor somewhere. But I, I mean, maybe I can make a distinction uh, with, with an issue where I think that the crude approach does apply that can like help to clarify the difference. I think that animal liberation, quote unquote, right, animal rights, that is an issue that I think. In broadly speaking, like at least on some level, I you know I agree, animals should not be hurt and they should be left alone and be treated with like respect and dignity. But that's an issue that we can work out after the revolution, because animals cannot be active participants; they cannot be agents in their own liberation. They cannot, even the term liberation doesn't really make sense in that context. They cannot be part of revolutionizing uh, the way that we structure society in order to you know have a more not with that uh, kind of attitude whatever. uh you know to be able to work out things like our relationship with the the earth and the and the and, uh, and the animals that occupy it you don't think cats get scratched the shit out of people that are trying to oppress them yeah, well, I mean, sure, they can do that, but I don't think that they could organize, uh, uh, you know, an armed revolt, right? Like, uh, or or go on strike or whatever. Cats are uh, always on strike, where, dude. <laughs> That's why they're the IWW's logo. Where, 
Whereas the you know the issue of uh, particular human oppressions or, or groups of human beings who are uh, oppressed groups. They are agents in their own liberation, and you don't get to that moment of liberation without including them in that process. You don't, like, get to the moment of liberation and then deal with their oppression, which, yes, of course, you have to get to that moment of, uh, to the, you know, post-capitalist society to be able to undermine the, the thing that's giving rise to the oppression in the first place. But you don't get to that moment of liberation, that post-capitalist society, until you Get you know until you actually address we, the oppression you're itself about in the first instance. What Marx and Engels refer to as becoming fit to rule, right? It's the actual, it's the struggle, the struggle against the conditions that make yeah. basically clears the way for the possibility of abolishing them in the first place. And that's the real problem with, you know, various the the top down socialisms of an officer's coup or a parliamentary majority is that it's the this the shedding of all of the the psychological burdens or whatever. Or like you know when Fanon talks about the violence of the uh, the, col- the colonial subject against the colonial master, it's, a, it's making the leap from what is to what could be. It's it's in struggling f- to abolish those conditions so, that that possibility even becomes uh, manifest at all. Does that apply to the uh, the armed dictatorship of the proletariat over the masses of the peasantry? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so um, to kind of go back to what what Kevin's saying, right, is that this is the thing that is so frustrating about what the libs have done to intersectionality, right? Which is that, like... Yeah. Made it a totally unrecognizable and useless term? Well, and divorced it from its actual roots, right? Which yeah. is that, like, we all experience exploitation and oppression differently, and the intersection of our oppression means that we experience exploitation in particular ways under capitalism, right? Like, for example, you can be oppressed as a woman and also as a billionaire, or, I'm sorry, I don't mean to use a slur, I mean person of means. (laughs) (laughs) Which is not the same as, like, people are mean to me on Twitter because I'm a woman. That is sexism, for sure, Mm -hmm. and misogyny. But it is to say that, like, women are paid less <laughs> in this system because of the way oppression amplifies our exploitation, right? Which is to say mm-hmm. that people of color's labor is shitted upon, right? Because of the way our oppression impacts our exploitation. And until we find, you know, some kind of roadmap to liberation that acknowledges the way those things interact with one another, we're not winning over people of color. We're, we're not winning over women. We're not winning over queer folks. Uh, no matter how much I think class war is the solution, you know, we have to be able to speak to people's experiences. And again, not just experiencing racism on Twitter or whatever else. That's real, you know, and shitty and whatever. But it's it. We well, can't it's real it in the sense that. that it it it, yeah. it is actual, right? It's a thing that is happening. <laughs> but that's like saying sure. like a person's thoughts are real, or a person's private conversations are real. That's all Twitter is is the unfortunate window into a person's brain. But it's not an arena of struggle. Like 
there's no amount of subtweets and retweets that that are going to like re-engineer the thoughts in a person's brain. Like it's you know, class struggle is a uh, is is I don't want I don't want to say if it happens online, it's not happening in real life, right? But uh, I mean, I think a lot of a lot of what we get caught up in 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 this kind of discussion is that we think of it as primarily a discussion. So like. You know, you have to argue with the person's ideas and you have to struggle with people, sure. But the way in which people's, you know, consciousness changes is is in what we've been talking about, which is in the, the clashing up against opposition to the advancement of their material interests. But, you know, I guess there 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 is a school of thought that says that white people have an interest in uh, perpetuating white supremacy, right? That they're... One of the ways that the term privilege is used is is literally in that way that like, you know, that I have an interest in you not being as well off as me because there's, you know, I think it presupposes that capitalism is here to stay and that there's a, there's a finite amount of mm-hmm. wealth to have trickled down and not just wealth, but security and whatever, um, the sort of intangible benefits of those things like confidence and whatever, uh, socialization of a certain type. Since there's a, a you know finite amount of that that will trickle down to everybody at the bottom, the thinking is, uh, if you get more, I get less. But the reality is that in that environment, it's that uh, if I get less, you get even less. And it's a subtle distinction, but it's really important for how we understand what power is, which is that we don't have any. So we're just talking about relative degrees of exploitation. And, you know, the special oppression of people who aren't white or whatever, just, it just turns the screws tighter. The reason I think that, you know, we were schooled to, you know, in, in years past to reject the notion of privilege is because I think what we were trying to do is reject the idea that, that, uh, that I have an interest in, you know, a boot on your neck because I do reject that notion. But I think, but in rejecting oh, that, I think what we, we, sure. What we didn't do very well, or we didn't do at all, is bring up the other end, which is that, you know, the tread on the boot on your neck is sharper than that on mine, again, to just abuse the metaphor. Right. I mean, like, concrete example, white workers in the South during Jim Crow were paid drastically less than black workers in the North because of Jim Crow laws creating a permanent underclass that could undercut white labor at any moment. Yeah. And it's actually still true, even though that Jim Crow is formally gone. Right. And, you know, on the other hand, I don't, I, I walk down the street and I don't worry about anybody stopping me and, you know, my attitude being the difference between my, the police stopping me and my attitude being the difference between life and death. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, like, when we talk about privilege, it's, it's worth yeah. acknowledging that there are very, very real differences in the lives right. that we lead. But, uh, which, which I think is the appeal of a lot of the privileged discourses that it like identifies the some of the uh, the 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 texture of our lives that is just glossed over by more like sure. grand social theories, you know. So basically, what you're saying is that we need to make sure to check to see if we <laughs> have a privilege yes. all the time. <laughs> Every day. All the time. And because, you know, and that's all you can do. Right. Really. And Yep. That is the most useful thing anyone has ever come up with was the idea of checking your privilege. As in check it at the door, which means don't use it. Just put it away.
Hey everyone, just a reminder that we now have a Patreon with exclusive content. As for now, it's going to stay at $2 and it will just have whatever we feel like throwing up there and it won't be in any regular fashion. Hopefully we'll be able to become more regular with our exclusive content and then maybe at that point we will create a second tier with all the really good stuff on it. But for now, there's one tier, it's $2, go ahead and go sign up. Also, like us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and please remember to rate, subscribe, and review us on iTunes so that more people can find us. And as always, please just share our stuff with your friends. And if you've got ideas of things that you would like to hear us talk about, books you would like to see us review, or anything like that, go ahead and send us a private message on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Alright, back to the episode. What a terrible fucking boring goddamn society would, like, a white nationalist society be, right? Like a pure... Yeah. Like, well, it is It is a boring society, this white nationalist society. Yeah, it's like, go go to the (laughs) fucking suburbs of Dallas if you want to see this fucking white nationalist, like Arlington. God. Um, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'll pass. But I lived there for a little while. It fucking sucks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just fucking white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, like the people whose identity, whose real identity, not the fucking one that they claim to have, like the 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 identity that's built around you know Michelangelo and fucking Beethoven and like Aristotle, their real identity, which is like buying a, a bigger pickup truck than your neighbor and fucking eating at Cheesecake Factory, you know, that's that's the real white identity of the oh United States, you know? And uh It really is. Yeah, and that that's a terrible fucking identity. Cheesecake Factory gives me an anxiety attack. Right. That's the I mean, that's yeah. who's to blame for you know, it's funny, like you, you always it's always called like a white bougie thing to like you know, like you mock people for having like a uh, predilection for like specialty what you know specialty coffee you know like good coffee or whatever but like what suburban homogeneity has meant for the society is that you i have to fucking choose between uh starbucks and a coffee bean on most street corners in this city um that's the actual cultural legacy of white nationalism it's the homogenization of everything <laughs> it's that i want every place to feel like my suburb and if I, t- if I take a cross-country road trip, every single place I stop will taste and look and smell and feel exactly the same. Right, and that might be the greatest crime of capitalism right there. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Honest to fucking God, yeah. Boring. It's, since, since the capitalists aren't just fucking like, mowing us down in the streets as much anymore, they have to bore us to death. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, boredom is kind of revolutionary. Well, I mean, being bored is counter-revolutionary or forcing people to be bored is counter-revolutionary. I'm f- so fucking bored all the time. <laughs> no, well, you know, this is not this is not important here, but uh, boredom is counter-revolutionary. The slogan means that, like, to, uh, to not actively seek out, you know, what the construction of situations, right? To not actively seek out right, adventure right. in everyday life is to acquiesce to the role that you've been assigned as a producer slash consumer so like if you're bored then uh get out you know and f- 
fucking seek adventure at all costs, even if it means, you know, danger to yourself or the society. Damn, that's really cool. Yeah, that's the that's the idea behind the slogan. Uh, well, I don't know. Are we are we trying to go down this list of consciousness raising, self help, call outs, privilege checking? We also, I don't. know, We didn't really cover it. We I just kind of made fun of it and then moved past it. I don't know. Yeah, if, you made fun of it and then moved I on. I don't know. Yeah. If, that's covering. It. Yeah, we yeah, covered okay. it pretty well. Yeah, I mean, that's the entirety of privilege checking. Yeah. Anybody, if you ever hear, include this. If you ever hear anyone privilege check their own privilege in a group discussion. You can write them off as a useless human being. That's some white bullshit. <laughs> actually, you what, know what? Checking is some white bullshit. Yes. Yeah. It makes so that actually made me think of something that that I had been wanting to bring up um, in this discussion, which is that one of the dangers in let's say over overcorrecting or or in intending too far to what I guess we we can call bad identity politics or liberal identity politics is that. Um, I've seen this uh, a number of times lately where the concern about the overwhelming whiteness or the overwhelming maleness of uh, the American left uh, is so great that sometimes it is blindly so in defiance of a reality which is rapidly changing in front of our eyes. Where, like, I've been in a large assembly gatherings that are um, very representative of american society as a whole and i've still seen them referred to as predominantly white and predominantly male rooms like i was involved in a debate uh recently in a in a in a conference and somebody on one side of the debate pointed to the other and said it's telling you know how many white men there are on this side of the debate and i looked back and forth across the room and it was like Actually, these two groups debating each other look almost identical in that they're about half male and about 20%, you know, uh, whatever. They were, they're very mixed, right? But it's this notion that, like, that's how it is and it, and it won't ever not be that way. It's a, it's a cynicism, I guess, yeah. that you deploy this, like, cynical, like, oh, that's white bullshit, you know, and even as a white person, I can say that what you're doing is, it's just because you're all white. Um, I remember one time at a discussion, the moderator sort of in between speakers goes, you know what? Can we get some more women on stack? And that to me seemed like the most fucking patronizing shit in the world. I don't understand why you women don't have more to say. Like, I know you're all intimidated by the men in the room, but if you could please come forward. I was just like... Holy shit, dude. Telling the women to get up there and speak is, is is that better than just allowing them to do whatever the fuck they would like to do? Well, and it doesn't resolve the issue of why women have a hard time speaking up. It's not because a white dude uh, didn't ask us to. It's because of, right. like, you know, lifelong conditioning under this shitty system that leads us to, like, second guess every single fucking thing we say. You know, um, that's not going to be solved by someone saying, oh, ladies, I'd like to throw you a bone for a second. Um, that, that, that's not how it works. That's hard, hard work. 
um, that takes like actually being involved in, in struggle and, you know, figuring out how to build confidence within organizing spaces and just our actual lives, you know, that that's much bigger than, than just tokenizing bullshit. Um, that's the, uh, liberal solution though is to just say things like we're gonna put women of color pull women of color to the front amplify their voices you know a thousand percent that dude said that to make himself feel better oh yeah, yeah. not per- to make any performative you might feel say supported or any sense of solidarity that said it's absolutely crucial that we always orient ourselves toward trying to uh, to make sure that we're encouraging uh, women and people of color into leadership positions and being comfortable in um, speaking in debate. Good save. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so do I think there are things that that we can do that are not purely performative? Yes. And I think anytime we are thinking about building leadership or cadre um, that are not just cis white dudes, right? Uh, We have to actually examine if the ideas we're putting forward and solutions we're putting forward are just to make us feel better or if they are actually ensuring that we're building leadership that is actually representative of the working class right you know one of those things is progressive stack like are we finding times to elevate the voices of the people who are the most oppressed and exploited or are we just finding ways to tokenize people um and to make ourselves feel better and like we're actually doing something to advance you know whatever the thing is right like and and i think that's hard because we're lazy and we're not creative and it's easy to just do things that are performative or feel good without actually having to think critically about the harder work of building people up right jokes on you because nothing makes me feel good (laughs) (laughs) and once again this is how I know privilege theory is bogus. It's because you guys all hate your lives way more <laughs> than I ever could. Look, it's just that Hell the, yeah. Bringing that the wages back. of whiteness have it. not caught up with inflation. That's true. <laughs> uh, you can't say that, though. Oh, why not? Oh, you, you think that, like, uh, uh, that the, the metaphor of the wages of whiteness doesn't apply to modern society. No, I just mean like life sucks more now for white people too. Yeah, and like the whole bar has been lowered for everybody. And that just means that some people's bars are even lower than before. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. Which is why it's important to differentiate between privilege theory. And when people are just using the word privilege, because it is a word that means a thing. Yeah, right. And that's the vocabulary they have. Right. Right. Right, I'm like not going to argue with someone about whether or not white privilege exists because it, sure, yeah, 
definitely don't have to worry about getting beat up by cops as much as, you know, a person of color would. Right, exa- exactly. And I think that's the vast major- what the vast majority of people mean whenever they say privilege is yeah. that there is a difference in experience between per- certain individuals in society. And c- conversely, the what the vast majority of people hear when you say privilege theory is wrong is sure. uh, uh, white people have it just as bad as right. everybody else. What they Men hear have is, it just as bad. <laughs> yeah. What they hear is you know some libertarian horseshit. Whether you whether you're saying it or not, that exactly. like we all have equality before the law, and that's true. And it also doesn't matter. The real question then to me is, and it is a good sort of final kind of concluding question, is uh, is the term identity politics and or the, is the tradition of, you know, developing politics around identity worth saving or rehabilitating? <laughs> I am a white guy. So. <laughs> so I'm not going to say anything about this. Look, I my reaction to to these sorts of things is all questions about like is I you're a white man. Well, no, uh, I, I we live in a society. That's that's like my response to this. These kinds of like propositions is uh, it's we who. Who am I to say whether this is redeemable or not? Is is this is the discourse that uses this language uh, one that I agree with or disagree with? Maybe I can answer that question. But if if there is a discourse where people are using this language and it's a, a useful discourse, then you know what? Who am I to say this is the right words to say or not? You know, is it a useful discourse to you, Jenny, as a Latina? Um. <laughs> okay, so way to tokenize her. <laughs> is that tokenizing for me to ask? Uh, I mean, I know how you mean it. If you were like, <laughs> let's let's yeah, throw it, um, throw it to the y'all Browns. Want me to like Sam, y'all, <laughs> y'all want me to like Sam Cook? Bring it on home or what? Um, I was kind of waiting. I was gonna. I was gonna say like maybe Jenny should have the last word, but I I was going. I wanted to jump in on the. You want to make Jenny go yeah. last? No, I was going to let Jenny have the last word, so that's why I was jumping in. No, it sounds more like you're going to make Jenny get to the back of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn it. That's another one of those things I wish we could keep in somehow. If you, if you can... Uh... Put it on a Patreon episode of, like, Best Of. <laughs> um, no, like, so I'm torn about what I think is the response to this, because, um, like, I think that you know, some of the stuff that we read, like Hater's book, makes a pretty good case. Jenny makes a pretty good case for, you know, uh, there being a good and a bad approach to identity as politics. You know, and, and there's like there's the identity politics that we've discussed at length that uh, that Harry Haywood called the phony war against white chauvinism, right? As a free-floating set of ideas that you just have to do, like, ideological combat with and, like, struggle session. And then there's the the way in which identity can be a, a rallying point and a, and a wedge through barriers in class struggle to, to, to bring people together. So, like, 
do I think that this is a useful, is this a thing worth resuscitating? And I would say if it was dying, no. Like if it was actually on its way out the window and we were like desperately trying to bring it back, like the way that some people are still trying to use the term Bolshevik to describe their own politics, as if that was, yes. if that was the case, then I would say no. An embarrassment. But since it is the discourse, largely, mm-hmm. um, I think it's probably more useful for us to delineate the way that Huey Newton did about, you know, the revolutionary nationalism, the reactionary nationalism, the good identity politics and the bad identity politics. And that's going to be tricky and fraught, especially, you know, when there are a lot of people who don't want to hear you say, oh, that's the bad identity politics. I don't have to say that. Well, I mean, that really is it. It's just that, like, for me, I'm interested in anything that is going to get us closer to liberation, right? And I do not think that it is opportunism, you know, to say what is going to build workers' power and what we're doing is not that, right? And I think anytime we are not doing that, we have to question the way we approach these things, right? So I think the thing that really gets at why I don't necessarily think we need to obsess over whether or not the term identity politics is useful, but certainly uh, why the tradition is one worth preserving. The Combahee Statement, which actually coined the term, and the, the paragraph uh, that that does is, I think, probably the best case we have to rehabilitating um, like revolutionary Marxist lens with which we should view identity politics. And they write, this focusing upon our own oppression is embodied in the concept of identity politics. We believe that the most profound and potentially most radical politics come directly out of our own identity, as opposed to working to end somebody else's oppression. In the case of black women, this is particularly repugnant, dangerous, threatening, and therefore revolutionary concept, because it is obvious from looking at all the political movements that have preceded us that anyone that anyone is more worthy of liberation than ourselves. We reject pedestals, queenhood, and walking ten paces behind. To be recognized as human, levelly human, is enough. 